This morning, I want to ask you to think about your own life and how you have responded, and better put, how you are responding to the grace of God. There's an account in Luke 17 that I want to draw your attention to. So before we look at Titus, open your Bibles to Luke 17. Luke 17, and we're going to pick up uh, reading at verse 11. There's a there's a story on how 10 lepers responded to the grace of God in their lives. So I'll read Luke 17, beginning of verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. If you are a follower of Christ, if Christ has saved you, if you I want you to ask if you are living for the glory of God. You see, we're going to see this morning from Titus that the grace of God motivates us to live for the glory of God in the same way that the grace of God motivated this this Samaritan and 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 pick up on the irony there the the other irony is that the nine who didn't come back were Jewish but the Samaritan this half-breed came back to Jesus to glorify God and give thanks and many times in our lives we profess faith in Christ and yet we we take uh we take um uh, peace and in knowing that our sins are forgiven, and yet we're kind of like those nine Jewish uh, men who were healed, we just kind of go our own way, living lives for ourselves, not even thinking about God. Well, let's turn to Titus too, and in Titus, we have been looking at a, a series of verses that teach us about how the grace of God works in amazing ways. In our lives, uh, we we see how God's grace um, saves us, how God's grace instructs us. And today we're going to see how God great God's grace motivates us to holy living and to live for the glory of God. This is the powerful, amazing work of the grace of God in our lives. Let's once again read uh, Titus two together. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves, urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. 
let no one disregard you. This morning, we're going to be seeing how the grace of God motivates us, looking at specifically at verses 13 and 14. There we see that we are motivated to obedience by eagerly looking for the return of Jesus. You see that what, what he mentions, what Paul mentions there in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. That, that, that participle looking for is, is connected with the, the verb to live in verse 12. So the grace of God is instructing us to live looking for uh, the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. This term looking for, it's, it's not just saying that we are to live with one eye on the spiritual horizon. Uh, especially nowadays you hear talk of saying the Lord's return is not far. Oh, beloved, the return of the Lord has never been far from the Lord's perspective, from ours it has, but we but we are to live eagerly. But it's not just saying that we're to live with one eye on the spiritual horizon, but that we are to be in spirit, eagerly anticipating the coming of Christ. We are to, to eagerly anticipate the coming of Christ. And th- think about your daily life, right? Um, and, and in a way, it's a blessing to us that our world is not so comfortable anymore, that our world is not so pleasant. Right? And the blessing is this. It teaches us that this is not our forever home. We're just pilgrims passing through. And the Lord has instructed his disciples from, from really day one to be looking forward to the kingdom of God being instilled here on earth. And, and this is not that kingdom. That is yet to come. As D. Edmund Hebert explains, the term looking for depicts their eager expectancy as they look for the blessed hope, the personal return of Christ, who will consummate our bliss and eternal glory. Um, John MacArthur adds the term looking for carries the meanings of not only longing and waiting, but also eager and certain expectation. Um, I remember as a as a early believer, as a young believer, reading passages about the return of Christ and and thinking, well, that's exciting, but I got a lot of, I got a lot of life to live. You know, I get married, you want to have kids, you want to see your grandkids, you just you want to do this, you want to do that and and sometimes those things just just cause you to think not so highly of the return of Christ. But on but on this side of youthfulness where I'm at now, I see that that's very foolish thinking because we look at the earthly pleasures of this world as somehow competing. And I don't mean those earthly pleasures in a bad way, the family and children and life. Those those aren't bad things, but but we see those as on par with what it's going to be like to be with Christ when we see him. And that's where we fail. We totally underestimate the blessedness and the glory, the happiness and the bliss that we are going to experience when we see our Lord. Right? Everything else in life will pale in comparison. I know that's difficult to believe, especially if you're young and you have a lot of life in front of you. Right? But it's true. Right? The best thing that can happen to you if you're a believer is the Lord would return today. Right? Today. And whatever you didn't do in life, that won't matter at all. This, this verse calls us to, to live with an attitude of eagerness for an anticipation of the Lord's return. Right? Scripture commends those who love the Lord's appearing. There are going to be people who hate the Lord's appearing. The Lord's return is going to interrupt their plans. Right? And he's going to come in judgment for them. But to those who love the Lord's return, who are eagerly looking forward to that day, not, not just to escape, you know, the, the uncomfortableness of this life, but because of who Christ is and who, who, who he is and the blessedness of being with him. 
And and look how Paul describes the return of Christ. He says in verse 12, and he, uh, sorry, verse 13, he says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. He describes the return of Christ two ways. The first way he describes this return is by the phrase, the blessed hope. And the word hope, as it is used in the New Testament, doesn't convey the same thing as it does in English. We... Um, we can say, uh, on, you know, in October, things are getting a little colder in Ohio, so we can stand here and say, well, um, I hope it doesn't snow too much this winter. And some of the young people here are saying, oh, I hope it snows a lot this winter. So we don't really know whether it will or whether it won't. So that hope conveys a bit of a, quite a bit of uncertainty. But in the Bible, when the Bible uses the word hope, there is no uncertainty communicated. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It is certain that these things will happen. The, the hope, the word hope conveys the idea of a confident expectation about the future. A confident expectation. And that, that confident expectation doesn't come from within us. This isn't the power of positive thinking. right? The, the reason that the, it is a confident expectation about the future is because it is based on God's word. Hope, biblically, conveys confidence in the certainty of a future event because God promised that event. One commentator explains New Testament hope this way, and he says, Paul often uses the concept of hope, of the expectancy that Christians have for the unseen and sure, but not yet realized, spiritual blessings that they will possess in the future in Christ. Let me read that again. Paul often uses the concept of hope of the expectancy that Christians have for the unseen and sure, but not yet realized, spiritual blessings they will possess in the future in Christ. The the Christian hope is sure and confident, again, because it's based on the promises of God. God isn't wishy-washy. He isn't upstairs trying to figure out how to navigate today. He isn't up there responding to uh, current events and scrambling to figure out how to accomplish his purposes, things are moving forward exactly as he has ordained them. But with the Lord there, his yes means yes, and his no means no. There's nothing um, uh, doubtful about what the Lord, about the Lord bringing about what he has promised and what he said he will do. And this is the hope that is described in Titus 2.13, as the blessed hope. Now, the word blessed can be translated as happy. But when we, we use the word English word happy, you kind of think of um, something that, that, that may be uh, kind of shallow. Uh, it, it might be um, temporary because it's very much based on circumstances. But when the Bible uses this word blessed or happy, it's speaking about something profound and lasting because it conveys a, a, um, a, favor, uh, a favored status with God. The word blessed um, is used of men when it's pertaining to, to being happy with the implication of enjoying favorable circumstances, particularly those flowing from God. The word blessed here is the same word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. You know, you're familiar with the passage, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Jesus goes on using the very same word that we're looking at here in Titus 2.13. The word blessed is actually even used to describe God. And it's used to describe God in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse um, 8 through 11, it's actually in verse 11, but I want to read uh, verses 8 to 11 just to get the context of this. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, and for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's an amazing passage if you think about it, because it, because there he's talking about how the law uh, is really set out for those who disobey the law. And he, and he mentions all these things 
um, all these different kinds of sins, lawless, rebellious, ungodly, sinners, unholy and profane, those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers, for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers. And then he says, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now, why, why is it according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God? Because it's that God who saves all those all those people that I just mentioned, all those type of characteristics, right? All of those who are lawless, all those who deserve God's judgment, God redeems. He redeems those type, all those types of people. And so that's why it's a glorious gospel, because the gospel that that takes people from their their destitutedness and their state of, of sin and rebellion against God, and it brings them to peace with God. And and so this is what brings God joy. You know, heaven talks about how there is rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. So this is the joy that God gets by redeeming people. That, that's his work. Uh, God is also called blessed. He's described as blessed in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. There Paul says, He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So he's the only God. There, there are no other gods. There are, there are false gods, and there are people who set themselves up as gods, but there are no true gods except our Lord. He is the blessed and the only sovereign. Right? One commentator notes that the, notes the important significance of the blessed hope that the grace of God teaches us to live anticipation of. And, he, and, he, and I quote here, he says, this hope is called blessed just as God was called blessed because it, like him, embodies and brings the blessedness for which Christians hope. Right? So the return of Christ is described as, a, as the, um, the blessed hope because with the return of Christ brings those blessings for which we are hoping for now. We are confident of them but we do not see them. They are not realized. But when Christ return, returns, we, those blessings will be realized. The Lord's return is described by the Apostle Paul as, as the blessed hope because that's when our faith will be sight. Our faith will be confirmed. The, the blessings of which we were only now hoping for, waiting for, anticipating will be received then. This is a blessed hope because when we see him, we will be like him. When, when we see him, our faith journey will be completed. Our fight with sin will be over. As 1 John 3 tells us, verse uh, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Notice there too, John, the Apostle John is drawing out the, the, the same idea that Titus is, uh, that we read in Titus. And that is as we fix our eyes on the anticipation of the return to Christ, then it helps us to, to walk in a pure way. It helps us to walk and pursue sanctification uh, John John says to anyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. And with the appearance of Jesus, we'll be with him forever, never to be separated from him again. And we'll, we will receive the many other blessings that he has promised to us on top of that. So we are to live looking for the return of Christ as the blessed hope, not as the interruption to our otherwise uh, plans that we would have for our lives. But that's not the only description we're given of our Lord's return. There's a second description given in, the, in Titus uh, 13. It says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So Paul gets more specific with this description, which tells us about the blessed hope we have previously discussed. He mentions the appearing, the appearing of the glory of God, of our great God. So the noun appearing that is used in this verse is the same one that's used in verse 11. Remember we saw that? For the grace of God has appeared. It's the same word. It's the word from which we get our English word epiphany. 
So something appears that, that wasn't uh, obvious beforehand, that wasn't visible beforehand. So in verse 11, Paul talks about the grace of God has appeared. That is, it's, it's past tense, pointing to life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now Paul uses the term to point us to the future, that we are looking for the appearing. And instead of referencing the grace of God appearing, what does Paul do? Paul now instructs us that we are to be looking for what? And, and that is, that is um, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, what, is, what does Paul mean when he talks about of the, great, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus? Well, obviously, this is a reference to our Lord's second advent. And, and Paul is, is looking at the return of Christ in a generic way. In other passages of Scripture, you'll get some details. So here, Paul's not looking at any of the details. He's just looking forward and saying that the mere thought of the return of Christ, of seeing with Christ and being with Him, is something that we are to look eagerly and anticipate. And, and he's not getting into the details. So he, he doesn't mention here the rapture. There's no mention of the rapture here. There's actually no mention of the tribulation. Right? So the rapture and tribulation come before the return of Christ. He's just looking towards the end. And he's saying, that's what you need to fix your hope on. This, this blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Now, in that phrase uh, where you see there in, in verse 13, he says, the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Some might see there a reference to the Father, that is, our great God, and then a reference to the Son, say, our uh, Savior, Christ Jesus. So while that's grammatically possible, it, 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 it is much better, and I think fits the context better, to see this as a double reference which ascribes deity to our Savior. So when Paul says there, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, Paul's writing that as an affirmation that, that Christ Jesus is God as well as Savior. He's referring to one person there. And, and the reasons for this uh, are, are um, multitude. First, the, the Greek text, which we, we can't read in the English, but the Greek text has only one definite article that, that drives, that is connected with both of these phrases, both with great God and our Savior, uh, Christ Jesus. There, there's one article. The reason that's significant is because that points to a singularity of what's being identified. Right? Not two people, but one person. Secondly, if you look at verse 14, just a minute, skip ahead. Look at the, look at the pronouns. Who gave himself? Right? So again, you're talking about singularity. You're not talking about two persons. We have one God and two persons. We're talking about one person of the Godhead here who gave himself for us. Thirdly, as MacArthur has highlighted, although the, New, the Old Testament makes countless references to God the Father as great, in the New Testament, the description of greatness is used only of God the Son, only used of, of Jesus. Further, we must also note the New Testament nowhere speaks about the appearing of God the Father. Right? All the references to future appearings or returns that, that we are to look for is it concerns the Son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is both God and Savior. Now, keep in mind here what, what Paul is doing. He's affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. Right? And some misunderstand what he's saying and, and um, believe that the Father and the Son uh, are one person and not three. And so they teach a form of what's called modalism, where God appears sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Spirit, and sometimes as the Son. But modalism is a, is a heresy. That, that's not what Paul is teaching here. He's simply affirming the fact that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is in fact God. He is God. And he's describing the second appearing of Jesus Christ as the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Now, the reference of uh, uh, to glory, when, when Paul, he doesn't just say uh, there in verse 13, looking for the appearing of our God, 
of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ Jesus. The reference to glory is significant. And it's significant because this is a reference to the Shekinah glory of God, which led Israel, protected Israel. This is the glory of God that Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. I'll just read the account from Matthew 17, 2. Matthew 17, 2, it tells us that he, Jesus, was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. So his face shone as the sun. That's significant. All right, I want to point out some things later. But remember that the, though Jesus was, well, his, whole, uh, his whole clothing shone white and, and other gospels tell us that it was, it was whiter than any, any launderer could, could get something white. But his face shone like, like what? What does it compare to? Like the sun. Right? So the, there's multiple reasons why God made the sun, right? But one of them is to reflect his glory. Right? And in the same way that you cannot look at the sun without damaging your eyes, you can't stare at it. Right? You cannot look and your un purified state cannot look upon the radiance and glory of God and live. None of us can because we are sinners. And yet, yet I point that out because I want to show, out, show you something later on what the Lord is going to do, what God is going to do with that. And, and think about that. What Peter, James and John saw, they were not permitted to talk about until later. Jesus said, tell no one, tell no one until later. But while Jesus' first advent was characterized by suffering and humility, the second advent will be characterized by what? Glory. When the Lord comes back, right, the suffering's done. He's coming back as a ruling king, glorious and mighty. He doesn't come as the servant this time. The next time he comes, it is as the glorious king. Now, it has been noted by, by one commentator that God's glory is not confined to some outward sign. You know, sometimes the glory of God is radiated in a, in a visible fashion is what he means by that. But it's not always. The glory of God is not confined to some outward sign which appeals to the senses, but is that which expresses his inherent majesty, which may or may not have some visible token. The glory, the Shekinah glory of God expresses his inherent majesty. And this is the glory of God that Moses prayed to see in, uh, in Exodus 33, 18, but he could not, could not see. Turn to, turn, to, turn to that passage a minute. Exodus 33. Exodus 33, and let's look at verse 18. Moses said, I pray you. This is him talking to God. He, he said, and uh, Moses said, I pray you, show me what? Show me your glory. Your glory. And God responded in verse 8, 19. He says, and he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, what? You cannot see my face. For no man can see me and live. What are you saying? You can't see my glory. You can't see my face because you cannot see my unbridled glory. The Lord said to him, verse 21, behold, there's a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In other words, Moses was only going to see a reflection, a filtered um, image of the glory of God, because even Moses could not see 
the unbridled glory of God and live. That's significant when it talks about Jesus' face shining like the sun. Right? So he is the image of the invisible God. Right? So he tells us about him. So when Jesus is transfigured, it is that Shekinah glory, the face of God, that, that the um, disciples got a little glimpse of, along with Moses and Elijah on that Mount of Transfiguration. So this, this is designed by God to motivate us to, to look forward to this to, uh, l- because of what he has done for this, for us and what um, he is going to do for us, that this would motivate us to live for him. And if, going back to Titus, we, we are motivated to obedience by knowing that Jesus, this one, that the, the one who is the, the radiance of God, he gave himself for us. Look at Titus, Titus 2, verse 14. This God, God, a very God, the radiance of God, the image of God, gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. In verse 13, Paul describes Jesus Christ as Savior. And in verse 14, he highlights the the work of redemption, the work of salvation that earned him the title of Savior. See, Jesus doesn't get the title of Savior just just by someone declaring it to be so. God declared Jesus Savior because he actually does the work of redemption and saving. And, and, in, and in significant ways, that's what Titus draws out here. Paul points us to Jesus' work of redemption, that is justification and sanctification. Now, we need to look at the, the, the significance of, of Jesus' gift of himself. Paul uses the word uh, to describe that, that Jesus gave himself in, in a one-time fashion. You see, he gave himself. He gave himself for us. This is a one-time event, right? Again, the the Scriptures fit together in a marvelous way, the way that Scripture ties together with Scripture. But this this is, again, another passage that shows that Christ died for sins once for all, right? The the godly for the ungodly in order to bring us to God, right? So the the modern Catholic teaching, which re-sacrifices Christ at at every Mass, is against the scriptures. It's heresy, right? Christ's life, his death, was was given and was sufficient to pay for all sins at one time. He gave, not he's giving. Right? So if Christ were continually being re-sacrificed, it would say he's giving himself for us. No, he gave himself for us. Point in time, in the past, one time. So he gave, he gave his life for us. That, the passage we read, we read today in, in Mark, Mark 10, 45, it says that Jesus came not to be served. Didn't he deserve to be served? He was king. He's Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He's God. And yet he came that first time not to be served, but what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's that giving himself for us. And who are the us? Well, it's not, it's not all believers. I mean, sorry, it's not all, all people on the earth. It's not everybody who breathes. It is for those who believe. Whosoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. He gave himself. He knew who he was dying for on the cross. Right? The, the Lord knew about you when he was dying on the cross. He knew about your sins and died for your sins. You know, the, the Lord uh, died. That atonement was specific for you. And it was, it was so full that the whole world could believe and be saved. It is, uh, we say, the Lord's atonement was uh, sufficient for the whole world. But it's only efficient for the elect who actually believe. What a blessing we have. And, and elsewhere, 
Paul highlights how those who have been crucified with Christ or those who have been saved by Christ are now to live for God. We read this in, in Galatians 2, 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we are motivated to obedience by knowing that Jesus gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. Should we not live for him? But there's more. And, and really to drive this, this same point further, we are motivated to obedience by knowing that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to what? What does Paul say? He says to redeem us from every lawless deed. To redeem us from every lawless deed. The Lord gave himself to redeem us. Now, the verb redeem, uh, again, describes a one-time action in the past. Again, pointing us to Jesus' death on the cross. And the word here, redeemed, could be translated ransom because it carries the idea of paying a ransom for another. It could also be translated to set free or to rescue. And Pastor MacArthur explains that redeem here refers to the releasing of someone held captive, such as a prisoner or a slave, on receipt of, of a ransom payment. What did Jesus redeem us from or set us free from? Slavery to sin. And this is seen in that phrase, lawless deed. He's, he's redeemed us from every lawless deed. He, he, he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Now, the, the phrase lawless deed is a translation of a noun that essentially means lawlessness. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness. All lawlessness, notice. Every lawlessness could be translated all lawlessness, everything. It, it is exhaustive. That's what God did for us. And, and the word lawless deed here, as uh, D. Edmund Hebert describes it, is, is the assertion of self-will in defiance of God's standard that is the essence of sin. You know, the essence of sin, it's not so much uh, somebody sleeping with someone who's not their wife. The, the, the essence of sin is self-will and defiance of God, Right? When we are born into this world, we are born as those who are in, living in defiance of God's standard. And But the Lord here re, gave himself for us to redeem us from that. That, that. that sin is lawlessness is clearly stated in 1 John 3, 4. And I read there, 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness, all lawlessness. And thus Jesus gave himself for us to set us free from slavery to sin. The, the significance of Jesus' work of redemption with his work of, of sanctification here should not be overlooked. As uh, Hebert explains, the expression here get, stresses not our guilt as rebels, but rather our deliverance from bondage to lawlessness through Christ's ransom. From indicates effective removal from that sphere and deliverance from all aspects of its domination. So when the Lord gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, it is to remove us from the, the slavery, our slavery to sin, to remove, remove us from the domain of sin, to take us out of its captivity. We, we see a bit of this in Romans 6. I'd like you to turn there. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And I begin reading at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised through the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now Paul is is drawing out there the fact that that we are no longer to live under sin because Christ has has purchased us. We've died to the requirements of the law, and Christ has also freed us from the slavery to sin. So when when believers sin today, it's not because they're enslaved to sin. Unbelievers are enslaved to sin. I would expect unbelievers to do detestable things. Because they're enslaved to sin. It doesn't give them permission to do it. It's still sin. But that's what sinners do. The unregenerate sin. The unregenerate lie. The unregenerate murder. But when when believers sin against God, it is by choice. That's the sad fact. We're no longer enslaved. Right? We choose to disobey God. Just like Adam did in the garden. The good news is Christ is going to take care of that. Right? But while we are here and on earth still looking forward to the return of Christ, that, that battle remains. And so that's why, that's why Paul's call here is clearly to reckon sin as dead. Consider yourselves as dead to sin. Right? Don't respond to it. Is, is, is essentially what he is saying. Don't respond to sin. Respond to God. In, in uh, John eight thirty four, Jesus says this. He is talking, talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as well as the disciples. And he, he answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So if you have faith in Jesus Christ, he has set you free from sin. Sin is no longer your master. Now, the, the, the sin of the believer is to be accompanied by repentance, which is impossible for the unbeliever. The unbeliever can be remorseful, but they can't, be, um, they can't exercise true repentance. And so that's why in 1 John, we looked at 1 John, we saw how the, the pattern of an, of an unbeliever in a sin, they can be sorrowful for what they did, they can be remorseful for what they did, but their pattern of sin will go on and on and on, unbroken by true repentance. Where the true believer's sin doesn't go on like that. It's, it's not characteristic of your life. That is, your sin is, is broken. Your habits of sin is broken by confession of sin and repentance uh, from that sin. Faith to God. So we are motivated to obedience by knowing that Jesus gave himself to set us free from slavery to sin. So think about the next, to- the next time. The next time you, you want to pursue some pleasure that you know to be sinful, just, just think about Jesus on the cross. He gave himself. He died for you so that you would not have to pursue that sin. You don't have to do that. And he's saying, set your mind on the things of God. Live to God as slaves of righteousness. Well, we are not only motivated to obedience by knowing that Jesus gave himself to set us free from slavery. There's more in Titus. He says we are motivated to obedience by knowing that Jesus gave himself to set us free from 
from the slavery to sin, but also to purify us. To purify us. Look at the second part of, of verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now the word purify is a word that points again, as a verb, it points to a one-time voluntary act in the past. A one-time voluntary act in the past. Jesus, Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. He voluntarily went to the cross. He chose to go to the cross to pursue the Father's plan of redemption for mankind. It, it was voluntary. But the word purify is a, is a translation of a Greek word that, that uh, refers to the idea of making one clean. In this context, is referring to being made morally clean so we can be free from the defilement of sin and free from the guilt of sin. So Jesus' one-time act in the past, on the basis of that and on the power of that, he cleanses those who have faith in him, not just in the way of justification, but also in the way of sanctification. The overall context of Titus is about pursuing good works. So this isn't just a, a context talking uh, or building up our knowledge of the justification which Christ purchased. That, that justification flows into sanctification. Um, we see the word, the, the word cleanse here, or purify, used in the cleansing sense in 1 John 1, verses 6 to 9. I'll just read that. 1 John 1, 6 to 9. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, and keep in mind that the phrase walk in the, in the darkness is a metaphor for living a life of sin. So if we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's an initial confession, but it's also an ongoing confession. That's what we looked at when we saw, uh, when we studied First John. That, that confession of sin is to be something that is a regular part of a believer's life. Not confession to a priest, not confession to uh, a, a pastor or anybody else. It's confession to God. You only involve other, people's, other people where, and confess to them if the sin is against them. Then you certainly need to confess that to them. And seek uh, forgiveness. You know, as one commentator highlighted, he says, whereas to redeem speaks of removing Christians from the control of sin, to purify speaks of removing the defilement of sin from Christians. So not only does, does Jesus want to remove us from the control of sin, he wants to remove us from the defilement of sin, to purify. Now think about what it takes for God to purify us. Some some people think that you know uh, that it was cruel of God to sacrifice His Son on the cross. They look at it as divine child abuse, and they say, "Why couldn't since God can do whatever He wants, why can't He just like say you're forgiven and just forgive your sins?" And we we've talked about this in times past, but the righteousness and holiness of God demands that sin be punished so that God would be both the would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus he sent his son to die for us so in order to purify us atonement for sins had to be made Jesus had to give himself in order for sins to be forgiven and Paul is is connecting here in Titus the positional purification that, that occurs at justification when a person believes and is born again with the practical purification that occurs in the, in the process, uh, that, that occurs in the process of sanctification. That is the progressive sanctification that we read about in scripture. God is concerned with both the practical purification of his people as well as he is with the positional purification. Both are important. But why are both important? Because God intends to make his children thoroughly pure. Um, the Lord will make us pure when? That, that process will continue until we see Christ. When we see Christ, we'll be made to be like him and that process will be completed. We'll, we will be glorified. We'll be, the stain of sin will be totally removed. The struggle with sin will be removed. But, but notice, 
Paul doesn't stop there. He says what? He says to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself. What? A people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. That phrase, uh, people for his own possession, was a, a phrase that was often used of Israel in, in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 26, uh, 16 to 19, uh, tells us this. I want to go back to this just to help connect some things in our detail, in our, in our heads. He says, this day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have today declared the Lord to be your God and that you would walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments and his ordinances and listen to his voice. The Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession as he promised you and that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made for praise, fame and honor and that you should be a consecrated people to the Lord your God, as he has spoken. You know, you see in this passage that, the, that God wants to possess his people. That is, he wants to be with them. And you see the, the criticality that they be people who obey his voice, who listen to his commands. Obviously, they failed that. And yet in Ezekiel, God promises yet to do that yet again. In Ezekiel 37, I'll just turn there a minute. You can either turn there or just, just listen. Ezekiel 37 Long after the kingdom was split, long after the nations were, um, were, um, were the Israel was removed from the land and while they were being judged. Here you have Ezekiel prophesying yet of the future. Ezekiel 37, beginning at verse 21. Through Ezekiel, the Lord says, Say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And that will make them one nation in the land on the mountain uh, mountains of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they will be my people and I will be I will be their God. In verse 24, he continues and prophesies of yet the, the greater David and says, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The idea of the sanctuary, that's, that's, the, that's the image of the Holy of Holies that only the high priest could go into. Here, God is saying, my sanctuary will be with my people. It's pretty amazing. And it's pretty amazing then that, that Paul uses that same kind of terminology to talk about the church, not in replacement of Israel, but alongside Israel as God's special people. 2 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 14, Paul says there, he says, do not be, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever or what agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God just as God said I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people therefore come out from their midst and be separate says the Lord and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Very similar language to what Peter tells us in First Peter 2, in verse 9. There Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. 
so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. And you have you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, if you are in Christ, you are part of that possession, God's own possession. You are part of the people of God's own possession. And the Lord intends to be with us for eternity. And thus, ultimately, there can be no stain of sin in, in the purity of God's presence. In other words, this is a promise to totally purify you, to, to finish what he has begun in your life. We're going to look at the end of the Bible a minute. Look at Revelation. Look at chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. We get a glimpse of the future and again, I want you to keep in mind the, the glory of God coming and being with his people. Verse 21, beginning of verse 1. There John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. God will do it. This is what God's going to do. He's going to purify his people and bring them to himself to be among them. And look at look at chapter 22. Look at verses three and four. Verses three and four. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him and they will see his what? Face. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That's significant. On that day, you will see something that Moses never saw in his earthly life. You will see the face of God and live to tell about it. And the only way that can happen is if God totally purifies you. The stain of sin is gone. The guilt of sin is gone. And knowing these things, what sort of people ought we to be? Well, Titus tells us. Look back at Titus. He tells us that we are to be. God did this. And God is working this way. So we do what? So we'd sit on our roofs and wait for the return of Christ? No. Zealous. Zealous for good deeds. It's actually an awkward translation because it actually means zealot. God wants you to be zealot, a zealot for good deeds. What is a zealot? Well, it comes from the word zeal, which you're familiar with. Um, zeal means to be, an, to be a zealot means an enthusiast for something. One who is eager, very eager to do something. What does God want his people to be zealots for? For good works. For good works, good deeds. What are, what are good works or good deeds? Well, in a general sense, these are anything done in the name of Jesus for the glory of God and the power of God and the, in, in obedience to the word of God. Right? It, it could fit a whole number of things. But in the context of Titus 2, what does it mean? You know, when, when Paul uses that phrase, good deeds... He is, he is um, going back, in a sense, referencing what he started in verse 1. Where he says, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then he begins talking about the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. These are the good deeds that Paul has in mind. Yes, there are others in a general sense. that Good deeds are a great number of things of God's work in our lives. But in the context of Titus 2, the good deeds are are these older men pursuing the qualities and lifestyle that God desires for an older man. 
they they it is uh, for older women it's pursuing those qualities and characteristics of a godly older christian woman young women it's pursuing those things that the god listed out there for godly younger women and for godly younger men these are the good works that god intends for us to to live out for his glory these are the things that he wants us to be zealous for. To be zealous. These are the things that our world, many of them as we went through it, uh, we realize that our world detests these things. They, they think these things are nonsense. Silly. But God wants you to be zealous to do these things. To live it out. As one commentator concludes, the good works of the preceding section, that is verses 1 to 10, are seen here as the proper response to God's grace revealed and made effective in the death of Jesus Christ. Listen to that. The proper response to God's grace revealed and made effective. Listen to how D. Edmund Hebert explains this. He says, eager to do what is good delineates what this relationship with God involves for those who have been redeemed from the doom of sin and death and brought into a unique relationship with God. The true voluntary response is to be enthusiastic to do what is good. It is the true badge of his divine ownership. Think about that. Good works are the divine badge of his ownership of you. He who eagerly awaits the return of the Savior will be eager also to further his cause by good works until he comes. It is another instance of the union between creed and conduct insisted upon in the pastoral epistles, and especially in Titus. Titus, is, it's, a, it's an important, good deeds are an important theme of Titus. So if someone has a creed, that is that they proclaim faith in Christ, and yet they have uh, nothing to show of their life, they, they live for themselves, they live in a godless fashion, and their mouths reflect the fact that they are slaves of sin and not slaves of righteousness. Know that they are they are indeed still slaves of sin. They're slaves, in fact, slaves of Satan in the, in the domain of darkness. But when someone comes to know God by his grace, the conduct of their lives begins to change. And, and we see this in many places in the New Testament. Just just to give a give you a, a flavor of a few of these. Like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared before and that we would walk in them. You see, those good works are what God prepares. We can't take credit even for those good works because he's prepared the way. He's prepared you to do it, and he's given you the resources to do it. He's given you the ability to do it. And But by doing it, you manifest the fact that you are owned by God, that you are God's child. Oh, it's it, beloved, it's just so incredible what God has done for us. The grace of God saves us. It instructs us. It disciplines us. It, it guides us, and then it, it motivates us by looking forward at what Christ will do. So how are you going to respond? How are you going to believe the gospel? Are you going to believe the gospel? For some of you, that's where you need to start. By believing in Jesus Christ as God. Right? God, a very God. And yet, man who died on our behalf. You need to believe in Christ. Repent of your sins so you would be saved. If you've already done that, if you already trusted in Christ, are, are you going to be instructable and teachable as the grace of God disciplines and instructs you? Are you going to be pursuing sanctification? Are you going to be zealous for good works, especially the good works listed in Titus 1 to 10? Do what is right and live your life for the glory of God, and he will reward you. Nothing else is worth living for. Nothing. How are you going to respond to the grace of God? Are you going to respond like the Samaritan who, after being healed, turned around and went back and glorified God by worshiping Jesus and giving thanks to him? Or are you going to be like those other Jews 
the, the, the other nine that were healed. Just going to go live your own life. Just as long as you have a so-called insurance policy of knowing that when you die, you'll go to heaven. If, if that's the only reason you're believing, you probably don't have true, genuine, saving faith. You need to do some heart searching about that. But God's grace motivates us. So, beloved, look for, look for, long for, eagerly, the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Because of what he has done, he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Look to that day. And do the good deeds that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are just so thankful for what your grace has done. We didn't earn this. Hence, it's your grace. We thank you that you are working in our lives. Lord, this, this plan, you're carrying it out. You, are, you are, are purifying us. And help us to focus our eyes on Jesus, to set our sights on his return, to live our lives, Lord, our every moment that we are awake with, with an eagerness and anticipation of Christ's return so that we would live for the, the glory of God. We would live carefully, that we would not live as slaves to sin, but that not that sin would be our master, but that you would be our master, that we would be slaves of righteousness, Lord God, that we would be eager for good works, that we would be teachable and instructable, that we would receive whatever discipline you receive us as from your loving hand. And Lord, learn as much as we can through it. And Lord, that we would be your people who are for your possession, that we may declare the excellencies of God, our Savior, every moment of our lives, through every deed of our lives. Lord God, by our lips and by our lives, may we declare your excellencies. Please help us to do that. And to the day, the blessed hope appears. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.